as I said, the text uh, before us this morning is one of the most quoted and beloved texts in the entire scriptures. And I think one of the reasons for its popularity lies in in the fact that it reveals to us in a powerful way the character of our God. It's an intimate portrait into his character. It begins with this simple statement. The Lord is my shepherd. But even that statement, brothers and sisters, is a truly profound one. Because when you see this, and you should note this if you have an English Standard Version, whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord printed out in small capital letters, That is actually the covenant name. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God. And when that name is there in capital letters, it indicates the covenant name. It was the name that God revealed, that Yahweh revealed to Moses when he first met him at the burning bush. A literal translation of Yahweh from the Hebrew would be, I will be present is what I will be. And as he described himself to uh, Moses, that's what he said, I am that I am. I will be present is what I will be. That is a tremendous description of our God. I will be present is what I will be. We've just celebrated Christmas, the, the season of Emmanuel, which means God with us. Throughout the scriptures, whenever you see that covenant name, that is a promise that God keeps, that he will be with us. Del Ralph Davis suggests an extended paraphrase of the covenant name Yahweh would be, I will be present with my people to be whatever they need me to be for them. It's just an awesome, beautiful expression of who he is. We serve and we come this morning to worship a God who is that before us. We have that privilege of entering in and having that kind of a God. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. And this God is a personal God, a God who helps us, a God who shepherds us. And this is one of the most beautiful things in our lives if we know Christ. And this this truth, this foundational truth was important for me in my conversion to Jesus Christ. In God's amazing grace, some 38 years ago, and I'm only 45, so (laughs) 38 years ago, I was saved by God's grace at the tender age of seven years old. Now, my conversion, perhaps like some of yours, was something that took place over time. I had a faithful father and mother who opened up the scriptures to me. We did family worship together. And my understanding of the gospel was very elementary. But one of the things I came to understand about God was through, mediated through the revelation of God in this particular psalm. Through faithful instruction, I came to a knowledge of my sin. You can't be saved if you don't know that you're a sinner. And as a little boy, I had, even as a little boy, I struggled with anger and temper tantrums. And I also knew from the, the, the clear teaching of my family and, and uh, in the church that sinners without Jesus Christ would go to hell. And this, this troubled me greatly. And the Spirit in 1980 began to convict me of my sin. And by God's grace, I started to become very, very concerned about my soul. And 
when I would come, every time my father would preach, he was the pastor growing up, I would come and speak to him afterwards, and you'd think that he was preaching on hell every week, because it was something that was very much in the, in the foremost of my mind. And to comfort me and to point me to Jesus Christ, he would quote to me from the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. He would quote this from the Old Testament. And then he would quote for the Gospels in the New Testament in the Old King James. And he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What a gracious and revelatory and, and, and kind and merciful God. So as I come to you this morning for the first time, having the privilege of preaching God's word and his encouragement, I want to encourage you from, to come expecting God to use this very means of grace that he has, he has been faithful to do in my life and in the lives of billions of others over the, the years. This psalm is a means of grace. It is a blessing to us as we come to it. And the message of this psalm is both simple and deep. It speaks of a God who humbles himself to become the lowly servant of his people, a shepherd of his flock. And not only, this is amazing, not only is he a shepherd, he is our friend in whom there is comfort, instruction, protection, rebuke, guidance all through our lives. So this morning we're going to look at this psalm under two headings, two simple headings. First and foremost, the Lord. Yahweh is our shepherd. And secondly, the Lord is our friend. Well, let's first consider the Lord is our shepherd. This first verse, a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. What does that mean to you this morning? I shall not want. We live in a cynical age. In this age of cynicism, it's easy for us to lose sight of what this phrase, and indeed what this whole beautiful psalm has to say to us. Why is it that we overlook this? Well, I think in our age of cynicism, in the age of broken promises, we are too quick to lose hope. What do I mean by that? Well, cynicism or unbelief shows up in how we respond to our circumstances, how we respond to our situation. For example, we might pray for something and then we get it, and, but sometimes we'll think, just, this is just our response. Well, well, it should have happened that way, right? I mean, I, I know I prayed for it, but you know, well, it, it, it should have happened anyway. Or we'll have given up praying because we don't think that it makes any difference. And someone once said that cynicism is distrust or unbelief masquerading as wisdom. That is the wisdom of this age, isn't it? To be cynical. That's what we're taught by our comedians, sadly by some of the, the, the actions that are there. But where does the cynicism come from? Well, we like to tell ourselves, well, you know, I'm not cynical. I'm just realistic, right? But I'm here to tell you this morning that cynicism's true origin is in sin. It's important for us to understand that sin is real. And the danger is that we begin to feel it everywhere. We even think we see it in God himself. And this is exactly what the devil wants. 
Think of this. The very first recorded words of Satan in his temptation to Adam and Eve are cynical words. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5 says this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is that? It's cynicism. God is presenting, uh, Satan is presenting God to Adam and Eve cynically. Basically saying that God is a two-faced God who is just trying to keep you down and to keep you from becoming like him. He doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because then you'll be like him. See? This is all serving him. And what happens? Well, if we know the story of Adam and Eve, and I think most of us here do, they respond to the cynicism because of the sin forming in their hearts. Now we do live in a sinful world, in a fallen world, and it seems like evil is omnipresent. And that makes it even easier to become cynical because it often feels more real to be cynical than our faith does. To be hopeful. To be faithful. And the reality is, in some sense, it is the socially accepted norm to be cynical. Because if you're not cynical, the world laughs at you and tells you that you're naive. But cynicism can't be an end in and of itself. Cynicism just creates distance. The cynic never really tries anything. They just end up criticizing and complaining and grumbling against others. And cynicism in and of itself ends in numbness to life. They're not engaged. They're not loving. They're not risking. They're not hoping. And it's true, as one person has said, cynicism protects you from crushing disappointment. If you don't expect anything, then you won't be crushingly disappointed. But it also prevents you from trying things and trusting because evil is present everywhere. It's actually a really defeatist attitude. And sadly, it's something that comes and appears even in the Christian church. But while acknowledging the presence of evil. As Christians, we know, if we believe the Scriptures, if we read the Bible, that this is not the dominant force in our universe. Jesus has conquered sin. Scriptures teach us balance. We're called to be wise as serpents. That means we're not to be naive. But we're also called to be harmless as doves. There is to be a godly innocence to us, a trusting spirit, but not in our own strength and not in the strength of men. We're not to have a faith in faith, as some people sometimes present it, or a faith in hope. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in our day and age, we have a certain uh, uh, cynicism about those who express hope, right? And, and, and optimism seems to be a, a, a crazy uh, idea in our, in our sinful and evil culture. But it's interesting that as Christians, despite seeing evil, we are still capable of optimism. Because as Christians, we're not grounded 
just in the present temporary world, our optimism finds a foundation in a true and accomplished reality. And it is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Without that, we fall into bitterness and despair. When I was in the United States a number of years ago, I was there for the first presidential campaign of Barack Obama. And it was a very interesting time of collective optimism. Around the time of his election, his uh, Yes We Can brand of uh, political optimism generated tremendous response in the American public. And I remember seeing this woman, Peggy Johnson, interviewed on NBC News. It was all over the news at this time. And she was quoted as saying this. She said, I never thought this day would happen. I won't have to work on putting gas in my car. I won't have to work at paying my mortgage. You know, if I help him, Obama, he's going to help me. And it's that kind of optimism that really feeds cynicism. Because it sounds crazy. Because it's not grounded in someone who can actually do those things. Obama could not provide those things. He would not pay her mortgage. And he would not fill her car with gas. She was interviewed a few years afterwards. And she confessed that things had only gotten worse since the election. She told the reporter that her mortgage payments and her gas prices had actually increased. She confessed that she had misplaced her hopes in Obama. So if groundless optimism doesn't work, then what is the alternative that the Bible, that this psalm, presents to us? Well, the Bible tells us that our optimism, our hope, is based on an eternal reality. In the reality of God, who is our creator, who is our shepherd, who is our strength. That is the power that we have here in this first verse. The Lord is our shepherd. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is our shepherd. The one who created us, the one who formed us from the dead, who sustains us with his never-failing, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love that pursues us to the end. And his name is presented here at the beginning and at the end. When we see repetition, particularly in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, we see that it's there for emphasis. Yahweh secures us from front to back, from beginning to end, 360 degrees around us. He is our shepherd forever. And brothers and sisters, friends, That is real hope for us. That is a powerful comfort. That's a confidence in the God who is our help in ages past and who will be our shepherd now and who will protect us to the very end. That is God, the covenant-keeping Yahweh. But why does he use this? He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Why does he use this image of shepherd. Now, this is important for us to think about because after all, if you know anything about the Bible and you know anything about Jewish society in the time of the Bible, shepherds were the lowest class of people, the lowest class of society. They had to deal with dirty animals. Their work kept them away from the temple. They weren't able to participate in the religious life uh, of of Israel. They, they um, They were despised. David knew what this was because David himself was a shepherd. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. 
His older brothers had the important jobs. He was the runt of the litter. And so he became, and he had the worst job in his family to shepherd the sheep. But the picture that God chooses deliberately here through David is to present himself, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the I am that I am God, presents himself deliberately as our shepherd. He is our shepherd to guide us as his sheep. He is the servant God who comes to guide us. And because he guides us, we have no lacks. I shall not want. When the NIV came out a number of years ago, it changed this verse, and they've, I think they've changed it again um, since. It was a more literal translation. It said, I shall n- lack nothing. Right? That doesn't quite sing as well as I shall not want. Right? But it is accurately conveying what this is talking about. I shall not want. I shall not. I shall lack for nothing. The phrase here, um, more literally or grammatically, could be translated as, I will never be in want with God as my shepherd. That, my friends, is true hope and true grounded optimism because it's beautifully grounded in the very personage, the very uh, identity of God himself as Yahweh. And it's beautiful because this is what God intends for us all along. He is our Sabbath rest. I know you guys have been going through the book of Genesis in, in your exposition, and Pastor John has already gotten past the beginning of chapter 2, but that where, where we see the, the Sabbath rest being established as a creation ordinance and in laying a foundation for the entry into that Sabbath rest, which will be the fulfillment and the glorification with Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the, the encouragement we have even throughout the scriptures here in Psalm 23, that he will give us rest. Jesus is our rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Isn't it interesting how this whole psalm begins? It does not begin with our works and able to say, well, we made it this far, and now God is going to, to, to rescue us. We made it sort of halfway, and God looks, oh, Chris, you did a pretty good job. Let me, let me pull you up and put you into this nice, restful place. No, it begins with God coming down and leading us into, to lie down into green pastures. Roman Catholicism has it completely wrong. We begin not with our works, but with God's finished work. Jesus' triumph on the cross brings us and secures us rest and peace. And this is the picture we find for ourselves in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, some of you may have heard of a, a pastor, Philip Keller, who was a pastor and he, an author. And, For eight years himself, he was a shepherd. And out of that experience, he's written what became a famous little book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Probably pick it up secondhand somewhere fairly inexpensively. And in this book, um, it's very, very interesting to see him meditate and reflect on this because he has uh, uh, the experience of a shepherd. And he says this, he says, uh, when he looks at verse 2, he says, Sheep do not lie down easily, 
Maybe some of you have some experience with livestock. I'm a city boy, so I don't know very much about this. So I'm reliant on these things. But he says this. He says, in fact, it's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. He says you can't do anything if they're, they're afraid. You can't get them to sit down. Because of the social behavior within a flock of sheep, they will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. So that if there is strife between them, they will not lie down and rest. And then only when they are free of these and free of pests can they relax. Uh, one of the things that, that I remember every time I... Well, this is the second time I'm in Barbados is, is the, uh, the mosquitoes, right? They're just ever-present. <laughs> just ever-present. And in, in Toronto, you know, it, it, we have seasons. We have these black flies, which are mean little things that, that bite you in, in May, but they're gone. And then there's mosquitoes throughout the summer, but it gets a little chilly uh, and they all disappear. And, and maybe I'm a little vindictive, but I love seeing the fact that they're all dead at the end of the year. But here, they're here. And so you can understand if you're being pestered by mosquitoes all the time, right? Or, or pests, you can't relax. This is a condition here. And lastly, these sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They need to be free from hunger. They need to be free from hunger. Fear, friction, flies, famine. Sheep must be free of each of these to be contented. And as Keller notes, only... Only the shepherd can provide the trust, the peace, the deliverance, and the pasture needed to free the sheep from these things, to enable them to lie down. And ultimately, ultimately Jesus is our shepherd. He is the good shepherd who provides us for us. That's what he does. He makes us free from fear. We no longer have to fear the wrath of God because Jesus Christ has bore that wrath on the cross. He has been a propitiation, turning away the wrath of God against our sin. And because of Jesus' great love and great mercy, He can help us to deal with the friction that we have with each other. And instead of seeing your brother, your sister, your husband, or your wife as the, the, your biggest problem, you see your biggest problem is not them, it's not outside yourself, it's inside yourself. It's your sinful heart. Because of what Jesus has done, it enables us to do that. The flies and the pests and the famine are addressed as well because He is the God who protects us. If He is sovereign as the Bible presents Him to be, there is nothing that touches us, nothing that comes near us that is not under His authority. And so even when we experience hardship and troubles and struggles, these are things that the Lord uses to bend and to shape us into the vessels that He has designed us to be. And He is a sovereign God. And even as we see it and from our perspective, we, we can struggle. I often think of Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good that many would be saved. Do we have a view of our suffering and our flies and our pestilence that is like this. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He not only makes them comfortable, he dies so that we can have rest. Do you know and do you believe this? But this contented rest 
that the psalmist talks about here is not about complacency. It is not a naive, overly optimistic view of the world that encourages us to do nothing. No, it's an informed view. As the psalmist says here, he restores my soul. How does he do this? Well, again, we can use the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. We can see, if we look further, or or we look back to Psalm 19, verse 7. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is it that restores us? What is it that makes us new? What makes us wise for this world? The Word of God. The Word of God is refreshment and wisdom and guidance and direction. It provides rest in God's eternal wisdom and direction as we walk in the paths of righteousness. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 119. I will not read Psalm 119 end to end for you, but it is worth your meditation. Psalm 119 verse 105 has one of the most famous passages or verses in the Old Testament. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then he says later on, this is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 119, verse 32. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You see, the law of God is not meant to to beat us down. The law of God is meant to be a sure guide. Like Olympians running on a racetrack, there are lines that keep them in place. And that enables them to run faster and freer. If they were running over and tripping over each other, they would never make progress. They would never get to that that record. But God gives us the lines. He gives us the path. And the path is laid out for us in His Word, in His law. Why does God do this? Well, quite frankly, because He is our shepherd. God's motive, though, for all of this is revealed in verse 3. It says he does this, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is for God's own glory that he will show us this grace. Now, the scriptures outline this. We see this uh, this expanded in various others. Ezekiel uh, 36 draws us out. We won't go to that this morning. But we need to understand that God acts not because of our merit, but according to His gracious plan. He will make new men and women of us, and His ways will be our ways. We need to understand that God is gracious to provide these things. But our, our shepherd here doesn't just grant us a peace, that it is an escape. He gives us a peace, a shalom peace, that goes beyond any understanding. So that even when we are in the darkest valleys of our lives, He is there to guide us. He is there to provide us. The image here in verse 4 is reasonably clear. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now the rivers, or the the, the ravines of Israel are are cut. They're called wadis. uh, And they can be extremely dangerous and desolate to descend into and are very hard to climb out of and could harbor all kinds of wild animals and dangerous and, 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 and uh, you know, precipitous drops. 
All in all, quite frankly, the valleys were our sheep's nightmare. And the, uh, the amazing work of God is described here is that uh, the valley of the shadow of death is just as much God's right path for us as are the green pastures by the quiet waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So we go equipped and outfitted into the valley entirely under God's protection. He is our protection and our comfort. And without God, without His Word, we are naked. God's protection here is symbolized by His rod. And shepherds would often carry a club as they're going through. They'd have this small club, this rod, that they would use to club um, uh, animals coming uh, that that would uh, prey on the flock, prey on the sheep. They also carried a staff, a long hook device that would enable them to to drive drive the sheep uh, and and, and direct them and even rescue them, pick them up by their their necks and and lift them out of uh, the deep uh, crevices that they would fall into. And they controlled and directed the sheep through a dark valley. These, these, These were tough men. Being a shepherd required you to be a rugged, strong man. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous 19th century English um, uh, preacher, in his Treasury of the Psalms, which is a great uh, commentary on the book of Psalms. And if you're going through your personal devotions and you want something to just nourish you, um, it's good to Google it, uh, the Treasury of the Psalms. He quotes uh, J.M. Porter when he's talking about the role of shepherd. And J.M. Porter was this man who traveled in the Transjordan area in the 19th century. And in the 19th century, there were still shepherds that were shepherding the sheep, much like we would have seen in the time of David. And uh, Porter described the shepherds. This is how he described them. He said, the shepherds themselves had none of that peaceful and placid aspect, which is generally associated with pastoral lives and habits. They looked like warriors marching to the battlefield. And in the 19th century, they had a long gun slung from the shoulder, a dagger, and heavy pistols in the belt, a light battle axe or iron-headed club in the hand. Such were the equipments, and their fierce, glassing eyes and scowling countenances showed but too plainly that they were prepared to use those weapons at any moment. I, if you gave me, I'm a Canadian, if you gave me a gun, I wouldn't hardly know what to do with it. Right? But this is the picture of God. We we need a more realistic picture of our God, of Jesus, the good shepherd. Right? You see those pictures and he has this nice little flowing robe and, you know, he looks like little Bo Peep, a male version of little Bo Peep. But here, he is a shepherd, warrior king. He's more like Rambo. Right? And who do you want protecting you? Who do you want directing you? We are never defenseless. We are never alone under his care. As it says in John 10, no one can snatch his sheep out of his hands. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have the comfort of 1 John 4 verse 4, for he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That is, Jesus is greater than Satan. We do not live in a dualistic world where good versus evil, and it's an equal power distribution. No, it's completely unequal. God, good, has triumphed over sin. And sin and evil will be judged 
No one will escape the wrath of God except those in Christ Jesus. There is justice. There is real justice in this world. As a boy, I learned a simple chorus that I still sing, quite frankly, sometimes. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. And when I was growing up, if I was in a dark place, because I didn't like the dark, um, sometimes even coming home through some shady parts of the city, I would sing, My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I got to do is follow. It just was a reminder. It was a way of preaching the gospel to myself that my God was shepherding me even through that. Now, I believe that this metaphor that he uses here of the valley of the shadow of death is not limited to death. But it does go there, doesn't it? God is with us, even in the dark path of death. No one else can be with you. You can have family around you, but they don't enter in. They don't know what it is to die. I don't know what it's to die. None of us know what it is to die until we die ourselves. But God does, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Death is a constant reality for every one of us. As Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, you're prepared for God's path. You're comforted by His protection and guidance through His Word and His promise never to leave us nor to forsake us. Let me ask you this morning, really honestly, being really honest with yourself, are you ready to die? Are you ready to face your Maker? Are you ready for the valley of the shadow of death? Do you fear no evil? The only way that you can answer affirmatively to that is to have Yahweh as your shepherd. Jesus as your guide. He is the true and eternal basis for our hope in this world and our joyful anticipation of the next. With him there is real peace in times of trouble. He is the God who became our shepherd. But he is also, secondly, the God who is our friend. Verses 4 to 6 involve a small change. Just read the first three verses and then verse 4 again. I'll give you a second. Just read it to yourself. And you see that there's a shift and a change. What's the shift and change at verse 4? There's a grammatical change. You see it? The pronouns. They changed from the more distant third person singular when referring to Yahweh to the more intimate second person singular. God is drawing even more near to us. He is our friend and our host. The language changes in verses 5 to 6 and the shepherd metaphor becomes more intimate, more personal. God is hosting us now. We are his friends and we have the privilege of his relationship. His concern is great. The current concern for our, our safety is now turned into a victory party. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. This is one of the most powerful images from Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. And I keep pointing, I'm afraid that my notes are going to fly away. But you prepare a table before me. Right? This is what he does. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now there is a party to be. 
I've realized in recent years that I really don't like eating outside. I remember there's a certain romance. We're going to go and have a teddy bear's picnic. And a couple of years ago, my wife and, and a pastor's wife who was visiting, we all have a bunch of kids. We had like seven young kids under the age of 10. And we thought, oh, wouldn't this be wonderful? We'll just take the, the ferry out to the Toronto Islands and we'll have a lovely picnic on the lawn that's there. So we, we bundled up our baskets and we put everything there. It was all supposed to be, you know, the lovely teddy bears picnic. And it was great until we got there. Until we laid out the food. Because what came out then were the dreaded yellow jacket uninvited guests. The wasps. There were wasps everywhere. And they just hoard around us. And I got to tell you, if you have young children and wasps, no matter how, how much you tell them not to move, that they, you, won't be butt, you won't be stung if you don't move. They move. They freak out. They run around. They scream. They get scared. It was the worst picnic I have ever had. And I just yearned for a place to go where we could be away from these wasps. Where my children could sit down and eat and I, we could have some peace. It's very easy to be distracted when you're eating. And for that to ruin your meal. Imagine being in imminent danger. Right? I don't like being bitten. So this picture here is all the more powerful because we see here him setting a table in the presence of my enemies. God hosts us in the midst of our enemies and provides a powerful image of his absolute power. As we come to the table this morning, we are recapturing that image that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. And no matter what is going on circumstantially in this world, whether it's a, a, a nuclear threat that turns out to be a fake or a real one, we have a God who in the presence of all of that prepares a table who gives us peace. And the only way that that is possible is in His absolute and sovereign power. Our enemies have nothing on us if Yahweh is our protector. There's no gulping and running at Yahweh's table. No, if you were to sit at God's table, would you be afraid? No. No. Our enemies are not as powerful, even powerful as a bunch of wasps to disturb us at, at, at His table. They can't even get near us unless God Himself permits it. He was Yahweh Yaira, our provider. He is our protector. Now we need to understand in the Old Testament that to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty. It was at the table fellowship that covenants were cut and renewed, were made and renewed. Moses and, and the elders did it in Acts, in, sorry, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 8 to 12. We can look at that. <clears throat> Exodus 24, verse 8. It says, <clears throat> And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of the Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for um, clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me onto my mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment 
which I've written for your instruction. Right? One of the, the things that's n- notable if you study the book of Mark, um, it, or sorry, the book of Luke, is Jesus had table fellowship. He would sit down and he would eat. And it was a picture of Yahweh, our God, who covenants with us, who comes and deigns to invite us to his table. Now, what kind of a, a host are you if you're not protecting your guests and providing for your guests at the table? And God provides and protects us at his table as we delight in the means of grace that he has given to us. And here we see in, in chapter 23, in Psalm 23, that God promises us his loyalty, his never failing, never falling, never stopping, always and forever love. And I didn't invent that phrase. That came out of my children's uh, own Bible story book. But it's a great summary of God's love. In Toronto, I make my people learn one word of Hebrew. And I'm going to make you guys learn it this morning. John and Mel already know what it is. But it is the word that is here present in verse 6. It's translated surely goodness and mercy. Or surely goodness and love. And the Hebrew word is chesed. Chesed. H-E-S-E-D. Or C-H-E-S-S-E-D. And you're like, I don't roll my R's. But it's good. It is such a beautiful word. You need to learn it. So say it. Chesed. Chesed. That's right. Surely goodness and chesed shall follow me all the days of love. And the picture here is that God's love, his chesed, pursues us. It never gives up. What kind of father would you be if your child was lost? And you're like, oh, well, you know, it'll make it back. Right? No. As a father who loves his people, he pursues us. Right? We may have bad examples of fathers as well. Right? But this is a biblical example. This is a God who does not leave us. This is a God who does pursues us. And he says here, surely goodness. And, and Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary argues that this verse should be translated, not surely goodness, but only goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. What a picture. God's relentless grace after our hearts. And relentless grace isn't just squishy grace. Sometimes he will use the hardness and the consequences of our sin to drive himself, drive us to our knees, to cry out to him. But what a gracious God he is. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We have a God who is willing to unleash that chesed pursuing love. And that's the word here for mercy. You're going to hear this word chesed over the next four, uh, the other three messages because it's all over the Old Testament and the Psalms. It's beautiful. God pursues us all the days of our life. And that's an amazing thing as well because you realize in your life, and you guys, many of you are younger, but as you get older, you see things change. People come, people go. Other relationships may fail. Even marriages in great sadness, we see marriages break up. But God is our true source of goodness. And he pursues us. He chases us with his grace. When my little son Noah was a little boy, and my little Ben is in, at this age now, we, we used to play a game. and It's the I'm going to get you game. 
I'm sure every dad has done this with their kid. Right? We have a little circular, uh, we have a staircase, and I, I, I just chase him around, and, 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 and he, i got to get you. And he, he runs a little bit, but then he stops because he's waiting for me to catch up. He wants me to, be, to, to actually get him. And, he get, and then we do that, and we do that for about five minutes, and then I get tired, and I sit down. And what does he do? He comes to me, he, he comes to me, he looks very forlorn, and he says, again, again. Again, Daddy? And so I get up and, and I chase him around for another maybe two minutes this time. And I'm like, oh, all right, all right. And he comes up, uh, again, Daddy? I'm like, oh, okay, one more time. And I chase him and then at the end, uh, uh, again, Daddy? Right? I need this, this encouragement to pursue my son. God needs no encouragement. I'm a human father. I get tired. I have sinful, sinful things and, and all kinds of things. God needs no encouragement from us, He pursues us. With that relentless grace. This hassid love. And sometimes it is that hard love. Sometimes we wish he would go away. Right? I'm sure Job felt that way. Right? Job felt under the wrath of God. He felt that very clearly. But God used that wrath. God used Job's situation as an incredible point of showing his grace and his mercy. We need to understand that without God, you have nothing in this world. Without the God of this psalm, there is no hope, only cynicism and despair. We're left with a hollow message and not this beautiful exposition of what is truth. Do you know this God? Isn't He attractive? He is faithful. He is kind. And He calls you to repentance. He will not be mocked. There will come a time of accounting. There's a point for every man to die and after that to face the judgment. You have to face this God. This God who has triumphed over sin and death. The God who, has, who holds all things to, to, to an account. Jesus came first as Savior, but He will return as judge. And we must understand this. And without God, we are left alone. And even now, for the time that we're here on earth, we're left alone. We have a hollow life. One of my favorite authors is a Christian counselor named David Paulison, the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. And he wrote a poem as he reflected on this psalm. He called it the Anti-Psalm 23. And he wrote it from the perspective of someone who did not believe this psalm. He, he wrote it to show the emptiness and wastefulness of a life spent without this shepherd. I'm going to be a rock tonight. All right? And here's what he wrote. He said, I'm on my own. Not the Lord is my shepherd. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. 
I found no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me, except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into the void? Sartre has said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. Now that's bleak. That's bleak. But that's life without Jesus. That's life without Yahweh as your God. Void of peace. Void of real lasting joy. Void of rest and relationship. Void of a table laid out in security in the presence of the reality of this life. What's your reality this morning? It doesn't have to be this bleakness. No. We can look to the shepherd. And I would ask you, let's do this collectively as a congregation. Let's read together Psalm 23. If you're a believer, read it with conviction. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and chesed shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. May God be our encouragement. May he free us from our cynicism. And may he help us to nurture our childlike faith in God, our shepherd.